And after a while, they just sense there's no love there. You know, all the positive emotions are gone. And all they feel like is neither one of them are meeting each other's needs. And that's when often they find somebody else at work or somewhere else, and they get new emotions toward this other person. And then it begins to grow, and they, quote, fall in love with the other person. And then they come home and say, I just don't love you anymore, and I'm out of here. How's it going, guys? Welcome back to the Dad Tired Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lopes. Join me every Monday as we dive into what it looks like to be men who fall in love with Jesus and help our families do the same. You can learn more about our books, resources, conferences, and even online community by going to dadtired.com. Let's dive into today's episode. Dr. Chapman, so grateful that you took the time to uh, be on the Dad Tired podcast today. For the audience members who may not be familiar with your work, could you just give us an update on who you are and what you're up to these days? Uh, my name is Gary Chapman, and uh, I've been a uh, counselor for marriage and family for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, have a deep uh, appreciation for the role of the dad in the home. And uh, of course, written many, many books and do a lot of speaking around the country on marriage and family. So that's kind of my life. Yeah. You said many years. How many years have you been counseling? Actually, over 40. Wow. <laughs> How, what, what Are there some things that have like shifted? You've seen shift. Um, obviously, culture has shifted uh, over those 40 years. But uh, in regards to family, have there been some like major shifts that you've seen over your time? Well, I think one of the major shifts, of course, has been technology, yeah, which can be good or can be negative in terms of marriage and family relationships. Uh, but I think that's one issue that we didn't face, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, uh, I think fundamentally, however, uh, problems are basically the same. If you have to boil it down, most of our conflicts in marriage and family uh, grow out of our own selfish uh, perspective on life. Hmm. You know, if a husband is, a, is facing marriage with the concept of, uh, you know, you've got to make me happy uh, and you're not making me happy and I found somebody else who will, uh, then, you know, that, that's, that's, the, that's the prescription for divorce. Right. Uh, but if we have an attitude of love toward the other person of how can I enrich your life, how can I help you, you know, that's the opposite of, of the real problem of selfishness. So a lot, a lot of other issues, obviously, in marriage and family, but at the heart of it, most of our problems come out of our own self-centeredness. Hmm. And that hasn't changed in 40 years. <laughs> or probably. Oh, it's going to. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I want to talk about your book, Five Love Languages, which is obviously most people know about that. But before we do, one thing that struck me when we had a chance to meet uh, a couple months ago, um, you we were attending a conference together. It was a small conference, and there were a variety of speakers who shared with us. But during that time, you actually sat in the same row as me um, one of the days, and I looked over and I saw you taking notes, and I was so impressed by that because I thought, what in the world could you possibly have left to learn? I feel like you you should be the one teaching us all the things. Um, can you just talk us through that? Like, what <laughs> after all your experience, what motivates you to still like want to learn and take notes? Well, you know, Jared, I think uh, we are either learning or we are regressing. Uh, mm. We don't stand still. Mm. And uh, my philosophy has always been if I'm at a conference, I don't care who's speaking. Uh, I want to take notes on what they're saying because I know I can't remember it if I don't take notes. Yeah. You never know when you're going to hear an idea 
or an illustration or something that, you know, you haven't quite heard before uh, that, that you can use in your own ministry and in your own life. Yeah. So taking notes just uh, helps me glean the most out of sitting there listening to someone. I mean, you're going to spend an hour listening to somebody give a lecture or 40 minutes or 30 minutes. Why would you want to walk out and forget most of it? Right. <laughs> so yeah. if you write notes, you can at least look at the notes again and bring back the memory. So, yeah, I just, it's just a, a, an attitude of always learning. I don't yeah. think you ever get too old or too mature to keep learning. Well, I appreciated that humility. It actually, it taught me a lot, even in that moment that, you know, you were teaching me, even though you weren't even on stage. So I appreciate that. Um, and another thing at that conference that stuck out to me is you, you were sharing and you uh, had mentioned that you ask your wife the same questions on a consistent basis. I think there were three questions that you said you often share or ask your wife. Can you share those with our, our audience? Yeah, they really, uh, these, these questions really grew out of an experience in my own life when I was kind of just really struggling in my marriage and just not knowing how to make it better, you know. And uh, I just asked God to change my heart and teach me to have the attitude of Christ, whom, as you remember, washed the feet of his followers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I knew that was not my attitude in my marriage. My attitude was, you know, look, I know how to have a good marriage. If you'll listen to me, woman, we'll have one. (laughs) 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 And she wouldn't listen to me, and I blamed her. Hmm. But... uh, but when I really asked God to change my heart and give me that kind of attitude, uh, these three questions made it practical because God did change my heart and gave me a desire to serve my wife like he served others. But the three questions are, uh, honey, what can I do to help you? Just a simple question. What can I do to help you? Secondly, what can I do to make your life easier? Hmm. What can I do to make your life easier? And the third question is, how can I be a better husband? And when I was willing to ask those questions, my wife was willing to give me answers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when I let her answers guide my behavior, and I began to respond to that, uh, what happened, it didn't happen overnight. But within about three months, my wife started asking me those three questions. Mm. And that's when our marriage really began to turn around. I mean, my heart had already been changed, and I was already you know, in a whole different atmosphere toward her. But when she started asking me those three questions, now we're doing what God intended marriage to, to, to accomplish. And that is two people who are reaching out to love and help each other become what God intended them to become. So, yeah, those three questions were really a turning point for me. I imagine that last question takes a lot of courage and uh, to, to bring up because I, I, I can imagine that there's some husbands that hear that last question, which is, you know, what can I do to be a better husband? And it, it's just a risky and vulnerable question because your wife may bring up things that you're not quite ready or prepared to deal with. Uh, did, were, you, were you scared at all bringing up that last question? Well, I think, I think you're right. First of all, I think it is a, a vulnerable question, uh, and most wives are willing to answer it. But I think many of us feel like, well, I know what she's going to say. She's been harping on it for 10 years, you know, or five years or three years. Uh, but really, if we want to build a positive relationship, we need to know what's in her mind, how we could be a better husband. Because most of us likely think we are a good husband. Right. You know, you just shape up. We'd, we'd have a good marriage. I'm a good husband. Uh, but the reality is we have different ideas on what it means to be a good husband. And we desperately need to know what our wife 
feels like a good husband would be would be doing and saying. Yeah. And you, you still have, you know, you're you're getting information. You still have the choice. I mean, you can choose to do what she says and make changes or you can choose to say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, mm-hmm. but if you really want to build a good marriage, we glean, we glean information. And then we ask God, you know, help me. I'd like to I'd like to be what this woman needs in life to help mm-hmm. her become the person that she's designed to be. And, you know, really, uh, Jared, there's there's great satisfaction in seeing your wife reach her potential for God and good in the world. You know, everybody's gifted differently and her interests are probably different from his interests. But when you're each helping the other. Uh, move out toward the goal and the the vision that you feel God wants you to accomplish in life. Uh, I mean, that that's that's a super marriage when you're yeah. both helping each other. You know, reach your potential. Yeah. How long have you been married? Fifty eight years. Wow. So so it worked out. It's working out. <laughs> <laughs> I got married when I was nine, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. Well, let's dive into the uh, the love languages. Obviously, it's been a majorly successful book and and a tool to help you know thousands and thousands of people. Um, how did you come up with this? Like, what what was the background of the five love languages, and uh, how did this whole thing get started? You know, it really grew out of my counseling. Uh, couples would sit in my office, and one of them would say. I just feel like he doesn't love me or she doesn't love me. Hmm. And the other would say, I don't understand that. I do this and this and this and this. Why would you not feel loved? Yeah. And I knew that people were missing each other emotionally. They were sincere. Uh, they were trying to love. They were loving in their own mind, but they weren't connecting with the other person. And I knew there had to be a pattern to what I was hearing because I heard it so many times. Hmm. So eventually I took time to sit down and read several years of notes that I made when I was counseling and asked myself the question, when someone sat in my office and said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, what did they want? What were they complaining about? Hmm. And their answers fell into five categories. And I later called them the five love languages. And I started using that concept in my counseling, you know, that if you want her to feel love, you've got to speak love in her language. If you want him to feel love, you've got to speak love in his language. And I would help them discover each other's love language, challenge them to go home and try it. And sometimes they'd come back, Jared, in three weeks and say, Gary, this is changing everything. Wow. Oh, climate's different now. And then I started using it in small groups. And the same thing would happen. Probably five years later, I thought, you know, if I could put this concept in a book and write it in the language of the common person, leave out the psychological jargon, just help people get the concept, maybe I could help a lot of couples I would never have time to see in my office. Of course, little did I know, the book would sell now over 13 million copies (laughs) in English and be translated in 52 languages around the world. (laughs) Amazing. It is amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Well, I, I remember I told you at breakfast when we had a chance to sit down that when I first met my wife, you know, I, I, uh, I was convinced she was my wife right away. She wasn't as convinced that I was her husband. <laughs> Took a little bit of time to convince her. But uh, we were so different. Um, our personalities were so different that I remember thinking, like, I need some kind of tool <laughs> to help us communicate and to kind of 
figure out how we can be on the same page here. Otherwise, I'm going to lose this girl who I really want to marry. And we read your book very, very early on. And we only dated four months. And I think within the first four weeks of meeting, we were reading that book together. So, uh, you know, I don't I don't have as many years under my belt as you do in marriage, but we've got we're we're coming up on 10. And I think a big part of that was uh, you giving us some language to communicate to each other. So I appreciate that. Um, one of the questions I had for you is it seems like so many people often marry the opposite of them or people who have opposite love languages or personalities of them. I was just curious, why do you see that in your office, um, that people are consistently marrying their opposite? And if so, why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think seldom does a husband and wife have the same love language. Hmm. Uh, it does happen. But uh, not really very often. It's like in many other areas. You know, we've always said or we've always heard, you know, opposites attract. Right. Uh, I don't know what all the dynamics are in that. It's just that I do know that when we're in love, uh, we tend to just if we're ever going to speak all five languages, we'll speak them when we're when we're in love. Because we just want to do everything we've ever heard of, you know, to tell this show this person that I love them. And so sometimes we. Uh, in, in the dating stage and in the in love experience, it's particularly when we're really in love, we've got this euphor- these euphoric feelings. Uh, we're, we're about the best we're ever going to be, okay, just by nature. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> we come down off that high after two years and we go back to being normal. Mm. And, uh, and in the normal life, we don't have the same love language. So I think uh, that very likely when we are in that euphoric stage, we are speaking each other's language that we don't have the concept, but we are expressing love in ways that are meaningful to the other person. And, uh, and we just assume that we're, we're just meant for each other. You know, we're just, we're just so together. Uh, but when we come down off that high, then the love has to become far more intentional because we're not doing all those things that we did. We're doing what we do by nature. Hmm. And so that's why I think we start missing each other emotionally. Hmm. Do you think there's an advantage to uh, people who marry someone who has the same same love language as them? I think it does make it easier uh, because it's kind of natural for both of them to speak that language. Mm. But what I have found is this, Jared, that even if they have the same love language, they will likely have different dialects within that language. Mm. You know, in the book I discuss this, that every language has dialects. Like mm. I speak Southern dialect, okay? Yeah. <laughs> But in, in, in language, but that's true in love as well. Uh, for example, if words of affirmation is a person's love language, there are a lot of dialects. You know, there's encouraging words, there's words of praise, there's words of encouragement, you know, and then there's methods or means whereby you express these. Sometimes it's verbal, sometimes it's written, sometimes we sing it to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's still differences, even if they have the same primary love language. Yeah, that's interesting that you talk about that because I, when Layla and I were uh, dating, I remember I was the first one to tell her that I had, I loved her and Uh she didn't say that she loves me back right away, which was really, you know, kind of surprising to me, but she really (laughs) needed to take the time to think about uh, if she did love me and what, what that all meant. Uh, And then maybe two or three days had passed and I came home and uh, she had come over and she had made me a cake that said, I love you on the kick. She had written it with frosting. I love you. (laughs) And to me, that was like, you know, it was nice, but it wasn't, it didn't speak (laughs) deeply to me, but to her, 
I mean, she had just poured her whole heart out on the line. Right. And yeah. uh, and I just totally missed it. I was like, well, that's nice. That's a nice gesture. You know? yeah. But I was still waiting for her to say it along with the whole speech behind it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but what's interesting, I guess, too, one thing I'm learning, to, you know, 10 years in marriage is this is like still a daily thing. We have the language to kind of process this now and we're, we're, we can say, oh, I think I'm missing your lang- your love language here. I think I'm not speaking what, you know, the way that you receive love. Um, but it's still like, you know, even 10 years in, it's a daily thing where it's like, I, I, we have to remind ourselves constantly of how the other person receives love. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's like, I talk about keeping the love tank full, just like with the car, we have to put gasoline in rather regularly or it's not going to run. And in a marriage, we have to fill the love tank on a regular basis. Uh, one of the things I sometimes suggest couples do is about every week, at least once a week or so, you just say to your spouse, on a scale of zero to 10, how full is your love tank? Mm. And if they say anything less than 10, you say, what could I do to help fill it? Mm. And they have a chance to tell you what would be most meaningful to them on that very day. And typically it'll be in keeping with their love language. And sometimes they may request one of the other love languages, but at least you know now what would make them feel loved today. Yeah, that is so helpful. And I really like the you know, filling up the, the tank with gas analogy because uh, all my Layla's love language is, uh, you know, acts of service. So if I unload the dishwasher, I'm just, you know, the sexiest man alive to her. She just, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, but I'll, what I'll do is I'll do that, you know, two weeks ago and think that that should carry me for the month. <laughs> so I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll get frustrated. Like, well, why are you upset right now? I unload the dishwasher two weeks ago. Uh, so I like the, uh, every, <laughs> uh, every week this constantly needs to be filled. That's really helpful. Um, you you ended up writing a book about love languages for your kids. When does that like at what age do you think you can start to identify the love languages uh, of your children? I think, Jared, by the time they're four years old, wow. you can pretty much figure out their language. If you just observe their behavior, how do they respond to you? For example, my son's love language is physical touch. He's grown now. But when he was that age, I would come home in the afternoon he would run to the door, grab my leg, and climb all over me. Hmm. He's touching me because he wants to be touched. Yeah. Our daughter never did that. At that age, he yeah. would say to me, Daddy, come into my room. I want to show you something. Hmm. She wanted quality time, my undivided attention. So, yeah, it's there. It's there by the age of four, at least. Sometimes maybe earlier, but at least by four, you can tell their love language. And, uh, and what you want to do then as a parent is give them heavy doses of the primary love language. Now, that doesn't mean you don't speak the other languages. You want to sprinkle in the other four languages because we would like that child to learn how to receive love and give love in all five languages. Yeah. That's the healthiest adult. Most of us did not receive all five. So we came to adulthood and some of these are just not natural for us. But we have to learn them as an adult. But if you really want the child to be emotionally healthy, you give heavy doses of the primary love language. You sprinkle in the other four. Chances are that child is going to grow up with a full love tank. And that's the most fundamental emotional need the child has is to feel secure in the love of the parents. That's interesting that you talk about how it's uh, really healthy for somebody to really be able to give and receive love from all five. Cause when I've met people 
who I've met people who say, well, I'm all, I'm just all five. Or when I've talked to, as a pastor, I've talked to wives who say, you know, he doesn't show me any love. And I say, well, what's your love language? They say, I'm all five of them. I've always kind of dismissed that. Like, well, he can't be all five. You got to be at least one. Now I feel like I need to go back and apologize because maybe they're more healthy than I expected. I think for some people, they do have trouble seeing, uh, you know, not one of them is being more important. The people that say that typically are people who grew up feeling loved. That is, their parents maybe spoke all five of these, and, and they see all five of them as being as love, and, and they've always felt love. And then they got married, and their spouse spoke enough of these that they felt love. And so I just say, you know, if you feel love, then and you can't figure out your primary language, don't worry about it, you know. Mm. <laughs> but yeah. but if you but you know, for most of us, there is one that's more important than the other in terms of emotionally speaking to us. Do you think it's important to try to grow in the other areas or like, I, I guess it's, I guess I've kind of just dis- dismissed some of them like, well, that's just not who I am. Do you think that's true or should I, is it important for us to try to see, okay, well, I'm not a physical touch person. I'm not a words of affirmation person, but I should probably grow in this area to become more healthy. Well, I think, I think uh, the good news is that we can learn all of these five languages as an adult, even if we did not receive them as a child. Uh, and yes, I think to to throw in one of the others from time to time can be meaningful. Now, their number five, the one that is least important to them, is really not going to do much at all to communicate love to them. For example, my wife's love language is number number five is, is gifts. We first got married. I gave her all kind of gifts because <laughs> yeah. she told me give the woman gifts. You know, yeah. I bought clothes. I did everything, and almost everything I went out and bought and gave her. She took it back and exchanged it for something she liked. (laughs) One day, you know, I took that as rejection. But one day I said to her, you know, honey, why don't we just cut out the middleman and you go buy what you want and what you like? (laughs) She said, oh, that'd be great. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. I've met so many men who are buying gifts and they just can't get why uh, their wives are just not loving it or returning it. That's so (laughs) relatable. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what I guess what would be your, your final piece of advice to a young husband and dad? Maybe he's early on in marriage. He's been married 10 years or less. Uh, he's got some young kids. And uh, what, would, what would be kind of your parting words to that man as he's trying to be the husband and father God's called him to be? Well, I think, uh, first of all, obviously, is our relationship with God because we are not lovers by nature. Uh, we talked about this earlier. We're selfish by nature. But I think asking God to give you the heart of Christ so that you approach your marriage and your parenting uh, with the attitude that God has toward us. And that is an attitude of love, reaching out to help us become the people that we want to become or he he wants us to become. So I think that's first. Secondly, I would think uh, would be to to learn, learn your spouse's primary love language and your children's love language and give heavy doses of that. Make sure you meet that need for love. Everything else in marriage and parenting is much easier if, if you feel loved. A family that's a loving family where everybody feels loved, uh, it's just easier to process the normal conflicts and other things that arise in every relationship. So I think that would be the, the, the second thing I would say. And, and I would say this, and I know a lot of guys don't read books, okay? But read one book a year on marriage and read one book a year on parenting. And if you only learn one thing out of the book, 
then that's one thing that's going to make you a better parent or a better spouse. So make time to read. Or if you don't want to read, buy books that are on on, on audio and let somebody read them to you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've said in my marriage seminars, I challenge couples to the couples to share one book a year on marriage. And when I say share, what I mean is the husband reads the chapter, she reads the chapter. At the end of the week, they share with each other one thing they learn out of that chapter and just work through a book once a year. That alone will likely keep your marriage growing. And the same thing is true if you read a book on parenting uh, once a year or share a book on parenting. Uh, I think that's that would be my suggestion. We, we, don't, we don't learn it all in one lecture or even in one book, but we keep growing and, and life gets better uh, rather than ending up in divorce. We end up closer and closer together because we're sharing life with each other in a meaningful way. Yeah, that's so helpful. I love the practical advice you've given throughout this uh, interview. Uh, I, I know I was trying to wrap up there, but one other question popped in my mind as you were sharing that. Um, I, we're in a season now, you, you know, kind of as young married people, we go through these different seasons where we get engaged and we get all of our friends are getting married at the same time. And we seem to all kind of be having children at the same time. Now it seems like I'm entering into a season where many of my friends are actually getting divorced now. And I just, I, it's weird to me that I'm in that season of life where our friends are, have had children and now they're, uh, many are getting divorced. Are you, have you seen kind of benchmarks or um, like time stamps for lack of better words on, on these years uh, like every two years you had, you talked about kind of the love, that feeling of infatuation going down after two years. Are there other like yearly marks within marriage that typically you see high volumes of divorce happen? Well, you know, I think research indicates that there's a higher level of divorce around the seven year hmm. mark between the seven and 10 year mark. Hmm. And uh, this, this means like they came down off the high after the two years they never learned how to really communicate love to each other. Their differences emerged. They ended up arguing about their differences. And in the arguments, they said hateful things to each other in a very, uh, you know, uh, uh, harsh way. And after a while, they just sensed there's no love there. You know, all the positive emotions are gone. And all they feel like is neither one of them are meeting each other's needs. And that's when often they find somebody else at work or somewhere else and they get new emotions toward this other person. And then it begins to grow and they quote falling in love with the other person. And then they come home and say, I just don't love you anymore. And I'm out of here. Hmm. Uh, it's tragic. It's really tragic. Uh, it's been so encouraging to me. So many couples have said to me, you know, Dr. Chapman, we're going to be honest. Your book on the five love languages saved our marriage. I mean, we were, point of divorce. We thought that we just were not meant for each other. We were just too different. And we read that book and we looked back on our marriage and realized how we had missed each other. And we took the quiz and we discovered our love language and said, let's try this. And we started speaking the language. And within a few weeks, our marriage began to turn in a positive way. It literally saved our marriage. Mm. So, you know, I think if we could get people the right kind of help uh, in those first 10 years, and they could learn how to keep love alive after you come down off the high. Uh, it would save a lot of marriages. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. 
And the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I know there are a lot of guys listening who are in that year mark, the seven to tier, 10 year mark. And there are a lot of guys who are probably feeling like, man, I, I married the wrong person. I thought this was going to work, but we're just two separate people or whatever the thing is. And I just want guys who are listening, if you're in that mark, whether you know it doesn't have to be the seven to 10, but if you're somewhere in that area, just know this is normal. Like this is statistically you're in a normal spot, but that doesn't mean you have to divorce. It doesn't mean that this is the option for you. There are couples who are recognizing this, getting past it, fighting for selfless love instead of selfish love. And so get help, get resources like the five love languages, go to counseling, continue to learn your spouse, but uh, you're not, you're not alone. It's worth fighting for. Um, Dr. Chapman, thank you so much for being here today. It really means the world to me. I know you're a busy guy, but uh, I'm so grateful for you to come and share your wisdom with us. Well, thank you, Jared. Keep up the good work of encouraging guys. You know, we all need help. We all need people to encourage us. So thanks for what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. 